0: I'm Taylor, I'm Kat, and welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder.
1: Um, so this week, in honor of the new ITV adaptation, Des, we are diving straight into the life and crimes of a Scottish serial killer and necrophile, which is always a fun thing to dive into, uh, Dennis Nilsson. So... Without further ado, let's get into
0: it. Um, so one thing I forgot to put in uh, into the script was this is your no eating warning. Yeah. This I mean, this, if you've got a strong stomach, go for it, but you know, just in general. This gets not gross. A good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So don't listen to us over your breakfast this week. No. Uh, In the late afternoon of February 8th, 1983, an emergency plumber was called out to 23 Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, North London, uh, following complaints from one of the tenants about drainage problems in the building and bad smells coming from the drains. Perfectly routine Mm call-out. 23 Cranley Gardens was a townhouse that had been converted into three separate flats. So all the properties shared the same drainage system, which is really fucking annoying when you live in old buildings like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the plumber, Michael Catron, discovered what he initially believed to be, quote, butchers prepared meat. Basically what looked like meat on the bone. So it looked like waste from a butcher's shop. But it was late and getting dark and his supervisor, Gary Wheeler, agreed that they would return first thing the next morning to properly examine the drains and figure out why it was full of bones and meat.
1: Yeah, because I don't think there are too many like work from home butchers.
0: No, No. especially not in the 80s. I mean, not even in this economy.
1: Yeah, exactly. The next morning, Katrin and Wheeler returned, but they discovered that the bones and meat had been removed from the drains. Uh, The two men were immediately suspicious, and they eventually found uh, four bones, which they believed to have come from a human hand. Uh Uh-oh. So they contacted the police. I
0: mean, even in your butcher's waist, that's not what you want.
1: No. No hands, please. Hands off. The pipe in, uh, that the bones were found in was connected to the waste system for the middle and upper floor flats. Uh, but at the time, only two of the flats were occupied. The uh, top floor and bottom floor flats, the one in the middle, was empty at the time. So um, the bones and flesh were sent off to a pathologist who confirmed that they were Indeed, human remains, um, and that uh, the victim in question had been strangled. And again, we're going to get graphic and gross, so wait for lunch, folks. Um, and turn back now. Maybe just skip this episode if you have a weak stomach. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, it's not... It doesn't get any better. No., uh,
1: so one of the pieces of flesh had come from the victim's neck, and uh, the pathologist could clearly see uh, ligature marks indicating strangulation.
0: Uh, DCI Peter J. and two colleagues waited outside Cranley Gardens for Nelson to come home from work. Uh, When he did, they introduced themselves and asked to speak with him inside his home. You know, there is still the possibility that Nilsson wasn't a murderer who was flushing dismembered victims down the toilet. It could have been someone else who'd managed to gain access to the building. After all, there's an empty flat. That would be like a perfect place to dispose of things of any description (laughs) if you have no connection to a building. But upon entering the flat, police were met with the smell of decomposing flesh. And when they told Nilsson the blockages in the drains were caused by human body parts, Nilsson just feigned ignorance and said, Good grief, how awful. Uh, how awful. Oh no. uh, but, you know, by this point, police weren't having any of it and asked him straight up where the rest of the body was. Uh, Nilsson told them that the body was in the wardrobe and police didn't try to retrieve the body they kind of went and looked and saw where it was and were like yeah we're gonna get you know scene of crimes in here Mm -hmm. and they asked Nielsen if there were any other body parts to be found to which Nielsen replied it's a long story it goes back a long time I'll tell you everything I want to get it off my chest not here at the police station.
1: Oh, terrifying.
0: Um, it's a bit ominous, isn't it? <laughs> it is.
1: Like, when when your criminal is like, listen, guys, I'd like to talk to you down at the station. You know that's not good. So, um, <laughs> with his, you know, lovely suggestion that they all go have a chat in an interrogation room... Um, Nilsen was arrested on suspicion of murder, obviously, and put in the back of the police car, uh, and while en route to the station, one of the officers asked Nilsen how many victims there were. And Nilsen, for his part, calmly replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. Fucking spine tingling.
0: It's, it's just the way he's described as it being, like, so... Just, like, nonchalant. Yeah. Just, yeah, just 15 or 16, you know.
1: No big deal. Um. So, DCI Peter Jay was driving, and the other officer in the car recalls Jay almost crashing the car following Nilsen's revelation. Fair enough, man. I do not blame yeah.
0: you. I, I'm not surprised, like... You're driving along. There's someone you've just arrested on suspicion of murder in the back of the car, and your pal's like, "Okay, come on, mate. How many? <laughs> uh fifteen or sixteen. What?
1: Like over a dozen. Uh, over everybody a dozen would
0: crash. Yes.
1: <laughs> Holy shit. Um. So, with that stage all set up for us here, who was Dennis Nelson, and what h- had led to his? five-year killing spree of 15 or 16 victims
0: dennis andrew Nilsson, known as des hence why the tv show is called des <laughs> was born on november 23rd 1945 in fraserborough which is in northeastern scotland it's kind of a bit it's near in, aberdeen it's
1: in aberdeenshire so same yeah county um,
0: very heavy fishing industry, that kind of thing. Um, he was the second of three children born to Scottish mother Elizabeth White and a Norwegian father Olav Magnus Moksheim, who adopted the surname Nilsson. Ah. His father had travelled to Scotland in the Free Norwegian Forces in 1940. Following the German occupation of Norway, Olav and Elizabeth married in May 1942 following a brief courtship, and the couple moved in with Elizabeth's parents. Uh,
1: however, Olav did not take his marriage vows particularly seriously uh, and spent very little time with his new wife and his in laws, uh, instead, preoccupying himself with the Free Norwegian Forces. Um, And it was later claimed that their three children, Olav Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, were conceived during Olav's brief visits to his wife's home. Uh, The couple divorced in 1948, and Olav left the family, returning to Norway. Uh, And Elizabeth and the children remained with her parents in Fraserborough.
0: With his father absent, Dennis spent much of his time with his grandfather, and had quite a cold and distant relationship with his mother. But in October 1951, whilst fishing in the North Sea, Nilsen's grandfather suffered a massive heart attack and died. Nilsson was only five years old, and young Dennis was not told where his grandfather was until the coffin was displayed in the family's home prior to burial, which was quite common at the time in Scotland. Now, there's a few different versions of what happened next. The first is that his mother asked him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. And, you know, young Nilsen hadn't seen his grandfather for a while. Really excited. Yes, obviously, of course. He was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. And as he looked upon the body, Nilsen's mother told him his grandfather was sleeping and that he had gone to a better place. The second is a colder version of events in that young Nelson asked his mother where his grandfather was and she pointed to the co- coffin and said, he's there. Nelson went over to the coffin and obviously found his grandfather to be dead. Neither is particularly great. No,
1: not so much. Nelson would later describe this as his most vivid childhood memory. What a bummer. Um... Following the death of his grandfather, Nilsson went from being an outgoing and adventurous child to being very quiet and withdrawn. He would go to the harbor to watch the fishing boats alone whenever he could. And when he was at home, he refused to participate in um, family activities and would recoil when any family member showed him any f- attention or affection. Uh, his mother remarried and had four more children in the mid to late 1950s. Nilsen was closest with his younger sister, Sylvia, but he grew to resent all of his siblings due to what he believed to be uh, the unfair amount of attention shown to them by his mother and grandmother.
0: In his early teens, Nilsen realised that he was gay and that he was attracted to his male classmates. But this is rural Scotland in the 1950s. And just anywhere in the UK in the 1950s was at best lonely and at worst a downright dangerous place to be openly gay. In fact, it was still illegal to be gay in the UK in the 1950s and it wasn't legalised until 1967. Because of this, Nilsson never acted on his feelings or his attraction to any of his peers. But he did molest his younger sister. Oh, good. He said his sister looked similar to some of the boys he was attracted to. And after molesting her, he decided that his attraction to his classmates was just a really weird manifestation of his feelings for his sister. Uh,
1: No. No, no. No, no, no. No. Um. So, unfortunately, Nilsson didn't stop uh, at just his sister. He also molested his brother while he was sleeping, but his brother woke up, um, and you know, we're not sure what his immediate reaction was. But Olav Jr. began to think that his little brother was gay, um, and Olav started to torment his brother, publicly outing him and calling him "hen," uh, which is usually a Scottish term of endearment to uh, a woman, like you know, darling, love, chick, whatever. Uh, but in this case, obviously it was used to insult Dennis
0: in parts of like in parts of Yorkshire, especially like South and West Yorkshire, it's duck, not duck. love or, or hen or darling, it's duck.
1: I like duck. I get hen all the time up here. Well, I get yeah, I love this actually. I get hen and I get pal when people aren't quite sure what the fuck I am. <laughs> which is fair. Like I dress like a teenage boy and I have short hair, but I have hips that won't quit. So, you know, (laughs) but yes. So, uh, his older brother started calling him hen, not in a fun way. Uh, not surprisingly, Nelson felt stifled living in rural coastal Scotland, uh, with its limited career and entertainment opportunities. Um, So at the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadets, and when he finished school in 1961, Nilsson enlisted in the Army with the intention to train as a chef, and began his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot, which is in southern England.
0: In 1964, Nilsson passed his catering assessments and was deployed to West Germany, and during his deployment, he began to drink heavily. One night, in a drunken stupor, he found himself in a flat with a young German man. He claimed that nothing happened between them, other than them just, you know, getting shit faced together. But it fuelled his fantasies. Specifically, his desire for a sexual partner who ideally was a young, slender twink, basically. Very pliable, very did as they were told. Mm. Uh, following two years in West Germany, Nilsson returned to Aldershot, where he passed his final catering exams. He was then deployed to Norway. Uh, a year later, in 1967, he was redeployed again, and this time to the state of Aden, Aden, which up until 1963 had been a British colony. Just called the colony of Aden. yeah, And it was part answer. of Saudi Arabia. Um, at the time Nelson was deployed, it was an independent state, but still sort of under British rule until they gained like complete independence in 1967. And the state became the Republic of Yemen. I think, if I've understood that right, I <laughs> fell down a few Wikipedia holes.
1: So Nelson's time in Aden or Yemen was very eventful. Um, On one occasion, he was kidnapped by a taxi driver and locked in the uh, boot of the car. Uh, But when the boot was opened, um, Nilsson managed to overpower his kidnapper and then locked the taxi driver inside said boot trunk of the car. So inside his own taxi. Um,
0: I mean, that, that is quite impressive. It is. It definitely is not for the taxi driver. No, unfortunate okay, for him. Okay, you tried to kid you tried to kidnap a man and you ended up being the one locked in the trunk. Okay, you have lost your kidnapping privileges this month.
1: I mean, it is uh, pretty good karma for that, perhaps. Yeah. Say. Pretty pretty good payback there. Um now in the sort of less near death experience uh, side of things, um, his posting in Yemen was different from Nilsson's previous deployments uh, because he had his own room in the barracks. And in this room, he was able to, shall we say, explore his sexuality. Basically, he just wanked a lot. Yeah. You know, he had a little dancing with his self time, uh, as Billy Idol would say. Um... Now, (laughs) over time, these uh, masturbatory fantasies, as one might call them, uh, began to incorporate the dead bodies he had seen throughout his various deployments uh, and a very specific 19th century oil painting by French artist Theodore Jerucot called The Raft of the Medusa uh and if you're not familiar with such a painting uh we will put a link
0: to the wikipedia page yeah,
1: you, you we'll, we'll <laughs> send you in the right direction um so said painting depicts an old man holding and surrounded by the naked and dismembered bodies of young men so this is what he was exploring Sexually. Wanking over. Yes.
0: <laughs> Following his deployment to Yemen, Nilsson served in various places around Europe, including Cyprus, Berlin, Scotland, and Plymouth, until October 1972, when his 11 year military career ended. By that time, he had achieved the rank of corporal. And it was du- during his stint in Berlin that Nilsson had his first sexual experience with a woman a sex worker whose services he solicited, for lack of a better word. And he described the experience as, quote, overrated and depressing.
1: Cool. That's what you want.
0: I bet she described it as the same thing. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right back at you, buddy.
0: So after leaving the uh, army... Nelson briefly returned to the family home in Scotland uh, whilst he, you know, figured out his next career move. But this stay did not go well. His mother badgered him about not being married with children. Very much like my grandmother since I moved back <laughs> to the homeland this year. Um, and one night... Uh, Nelson watched a documentary about gay men with his brother, his sister-in-law and a few others and got into a heated debate with his brother about gay rights and Olav outed Nilsson to their mother. And it's actually been said since like, since he was caught and since the trial and everything, his mother didn't disown him for being a serial killer. She disowned him for being gay. Oh, good. So, yeah, after being outed to his, his mother, who was, you know, very disappointed in him for not being married with kids, <laughs> Nilsson decided to join the Metropolitan Police. And it is quite common for people to leave the forces and go into the police service. Um, it's the structure. It's For some, it's the whole, like, the power and control. For some, they just can't live a normal life because they need that structure and they need that, like, regimented lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they've been in the forces for quite a long time. Um, so obviously the Metropolitan Police is based in London. So he moved to London in December 1972 and he never spoke to his brother again and maintained very sporadic contact with his mother and sister. And we don't actually know anything about his younger siblings, like half siblings. Yeah. So don't, don't even, I couldn't even find their names. I mean, I assume they are out there somewhere. Um, so i don't know what kind of relationship he had with them even
1: probably not great but, judging on the rest of them
0: yeah it's very very fragmented sort of family yeah relationships uh in april
1: 1973 uh, nelson completed his police training and was posted to willsden green as junior constable um Although Nilsson enjoyed his new job, he missed the camaraderie of the army and began drinking heavily. Uh, He also began to frequent uh, the gay pubs and clubs from the summer of 1973 onwards and engaged in numerous one-night stands. But he viewed these encounters as, quote, soul-destroying, and he longed for a serious long-term relationship. He eventually came... uh, to the conclusion that his professional life as a police officer was at odds with his, quote, personal lifestyle, uh, which, you know, could be him being gay, because obviously the police force is uh, notoriously homophobic, or uh, just that being an officer can make a social life or relationship difficult in general
0: yeah personal lifestyle was never really explained <laughs> in all the like all the reading i did it was always his personal lifestyle i'm like what does that mean what do you mean
1: that- <laughs> with this clash with his personal lifestyle in mind uh in december of 1973 Nelson resigned from the police force uh instead he took on a uh, work as a security guard um, but the work was intermittent and so in his desire for a more stable income he became a civil servant and was initially posted to the job center on denmark street which is in london's west end Uh, he was a quiet employee his attendance record was mediocre but he was good at his job and would often volunteer for overtime Can you get away with having a mediocre attendance record at a job anymore? I feel like that's not a thing you can just do.
0: I mean, employers get away with just not paying people. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, I saw a job advert for like a full time sports journalist the other day and it was. Uh, must work unpaid for X amount of time until you have proved yourself, and I was yeah. like, "Oh, fuck like, yourself, fuck
1: off, oh no!" Uh, or like the the full time job listings that also require that are listed as entry level
0: require oh, entry level and ten years experience, ten years I experience,
1: and um is only a graduate degree, and you know you get paid in good life experience. It, and like, yeah. there are listings that actually say that. I'm just like, no, fuck you. Life experience doesn't fill Does my fridge. Not pay the bill. <laughs> like, fuck
0: off. Uh, anyway, that annoys me so much. Pay yeah. your employees. If, if pay
1: your people, people.
0: Yeah. If you're uh, the best quote I've ever seen is if your um, if your business model requires you to not. Um, relies on you not paying your staff. One, you're a cunt. And two, you need a better business model.
1: Yeah, or... just don't hire staff. <laughs> like...
0: Or do the fucking work yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do it yourself. <laughs> like... Yeah. Uh, that's why that's why this is just you and me. Because we have no money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we don't... We can't pay for interns. And we've... I've been the unpaid intern for too long that I would never... We have to do that. We are to someone our own else. <laughs> our own unpaid yeah, we interns. We are our
0: own <laughs> interns. <laughs> uh, anyway, right. Join our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's our tangent. privilege is over for this episode. Jo- join our, <laughs> our Patreon so you can
1: pay our interns who are us. <laughs> interns are us. Okay. Uh, where the fuck were we? Oh yeah. So he often uh, volunteered for overtime. So he got paid more. Good for him. Um, In June 1982, he was promoted to executive officer and moved to the job centre in Kentish Town in North London.
0: In November 1975, Nilsen met 20-year-old David Gallican, who had recently moved to London from Western Supermare, which is a lovely beach town in southwest England. Nilsen took David back to his flat and the two had dinner together and drank and talked all night. And Nilsen learned that David was unemployed, living in a hostel. So the next morning, he didn't really want David to leave. And because David didn't really have anywhere to go, Nilsen asked him to move in with him and David agreed.
1: Oh, this will be good. In
0: 1972, Nilsen's father had died and he had left each of his children a £1,000 which is about eleven and a half thousand pound today. Nelson had saved the money, and so when he and David decided to move in together, he used the money to help secure a large property. Although they still rented, and the two moved into the ground floor flat on Melrose Avenue in Northwest London. The flat was in a bit of a sorry state, and Nelson had negotiated a deal with the landlord that he and David would basically restore it um, and have exec. Uh, exclusive use of the garden. Yeah. And so, Nilsson went out to work, David stayed at home, worked on the flat. Basically a kept man. I mean, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal if the person you're living with is nice. I mean, I'm basically a kept man. <laughs>
1: so, you know, it's a, it's not a bad life. I
0: recommend. I mean, the option to be a kept Man or woman is obviously nice, but if you want to go out to work, go out to work. But Nielsen didn't want David to work. He wanted to be the breadwinner and the one in control. The,
1: the relationship between the two has been described as more of a companionship, say, than a loving and sexual relationship. Um, apparently, they mostly slept in separate beds and rarely had sex. Um, And this setup worked for the two of them for about a year, but eventually uh, they both started to bring home other men. Uh, So the two began to fight more often, and David claimed Dennis became increasingly abusive towards the end of their relationship. Uh, In May of 1977, the relationship ended, uh, and each man claimed to be the one to end it. Um, and David moved out of the flat on Melrose Avenue. Now, for the next 18 months, Nilsson frequently engaged in one-night stands and very short-term relationships and once again began to drink heavily. By late 1978, Nilsson was living a very solitary life and had come to the conclusion that he was impossible to live with. So... One of the contributors to the real crime documentary, which uh, we will uh, put a link in the notes as as we do, um, said that Dennis Nelson was just a very boring person. And eventually he he bored people until they left. Now. <laughs> lovely.
0: That's savage. Uh, it's like <laughs> it's
1: true. Yeah, probably true. But but like rough. Um, another said that his drinking was also a huge factor in isolating him from others and that if he had stopped drinking or at least cut down on the amount that he was drinking, um, he would have been a much more pleasant person to be around. Um, so with all that in mind, in December of 1978, Nilsson managed to find a way to make sure nobody could ever leave him again. Cool.
0: On December 30th, 1978, Nilsson met 14-year-old Stephen Holmes at a pub called the Cricklewood Arms in North London. Nilsson invited Stephen back to his flat. Now, in police interviews, Nilsson made it very clear that he believed that the boy was around 18 or 19 years old. He was not targeting underage boys. He made that very clear, because apparently that makes what he did next much better. Yeah. The two spent the night drinking in Nelson's flat, and the next morning, Nelson awoke to find that Stephen was still asleep in his bed, and in that moment, decided that Stephen was going to spend New Year's with him whether he wanted to or not. And whilst he slept, Nelson took a necktie and strangled Stephen until he fell into unconsciousness, and then drowned him in a bucket of water. He then washed. Stephen's body in the bath laid him out on the bed. Uh so Nilsson became known as a necrophile. He admitted to performing sex acts upon the bodies of his victims but also claims that these acts weren't penetrative, penetrative. Uh a few days later Nilsson hid Stephen's body beneath the floorboards of his flat. Uh and that was where they would remain for about 7 months
1: come on man like i'm getting serious like peter tobin vibes where we're going on road trips with five month old dead bodies like let's not oh. can, can all the scottish serial killers just not fucking do that please like utterly disgusting that...
0: and the, the thing i don't get is like like just the smell like right I have never smelt a decomposing body. I don't know what it smells like, but I know everyone says you cannot get that smell out of your mind ever. No.
1: So in August of 1979, Nilsson burned Stephen's body in a bonfire in the garden at Melrose Avenue. Um, but Nilsson couldn't remember Stephen's name. And so when he was arrested and told police about his first murder victim, police had no idea who the boy was and no way of finding out. Uh, in fact, Stephen wouldn't be identified until 2006 when microscopic remains from the garden at Melrose Avenue were uh, DNA tested. So that's a long-ass time. On October 11, 1979, Nilsson attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named uh, Andrew Ho. The pair had met in a St. Martin's Lane pub, and Nilsson lured Andrew to his flat on the promise of sex. Uh, Nilsen attempted to strangle Andrew, but Andrew managed to flee from the flat on Melrose Avenue and reported the incident to police. Uh, Nilsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but no further action was taken. Uh, now, for for true eagle-eyed crime fans out there, this is actually very similar to one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims who, uh, who managed to escape and was picked up by the police, but uh, Dahmer convinced them that the battered and bloodied boy was actually his boyfriend and they just had a fight and police were like oh you gays and just left him alone um so thankfully unlike tomer's victim andrew ho actually survived his encounter with nelson
0: it didn't take long for nelson to find another victim about seven weeks actually His second victim was Kenneth Ockenden, a 23-year-old Canadian student who was travelling around the UK. The pair met on December 3rd, 1979, in a pub in London's West End. Um, When he learnt that Kenneth was a tourist, Nilsson offered to show him around, kind of be like a tour guide, take him to all the sites and landmarks around London. Um, and he then invited Kenneth back to his flat on the promise of food and drinks, which Kenneth accepted. The pair spent the evening drinking rum and whiskey. And at some point, Nilsson strangled Kenneth with the lead from a pair of headphones. Oh. Uh, when confessing to Kenneth's murder, Nilsson claimed that he couldn't actually remember the murder. Just that at some point he'd strangled him. The next day, he went out and bought a Polaroid camera. Caused Kenneth's body in various, quote unquote, suggestive, which I think is code for sexual mm-hmm. positions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then sat the body on the sofa and talked to him as he watched TV, just as though it was a flatmate or a living boyfriend. Great. Um, and eventually, he hid Kenneth's body under the floorboards as he had done with Stephen's body.
1: Just sounds great all around. Nilsen's third victim was 16-year-old Martin Duffy from Birkenhead, which is on the Werrell near Liverpool in northwest England. Uh, Duffy was a runaway and was also homeless. Uh, they met on May 17th,
0: 1980. So we see with most serial killers that there's like an escalation in a few different respects. Uh, the time between the murders tends to increase because that sort of high, for lack of a better word, doesn't last as long. And the manner of killing gets more and more violent to satisfy that that need and provide that same high. And with Nelson, the time between the second and third, third murders is less than six months, whereas the first and second was like just under a year. Mm-hmm. And even if he had succeeded in killing Andrew Ho, it would still have been 10 months. So that is now like halved that time between murders. Yeah,
1: that's definitely, definitely
0: compressing
1: the, the um, time scale there. Yeah. Um, so Nilsson met Martin Duffy at a train station in London, uh, and he was actually returning from a conference in Southport, which is um, fairly close to Liverpool, where Martin was from. Martin had traveled to London just four days earlier, um, and he had been questioned by British transport police for evading fares and ended up hitchhiking for most of the journey. Uh, he was sleeping rough near Euston Station, uh, which is one of London's main major train stations, if if you haven't had the pleasure of of
0: <laughs> I managed to get
1: stranded during a fucking hurricane in Houston earlier this year. <laughs> so I know it well. Um so Nelson offered Martin a place to stay and because he was exhausted and cold and hungry, um Martin jumped at Nelson's offer of food and a place to sleep. But he really shouldn't have because After Martin fell asleep, Nelson strangled him with a ligature, uh, and if that wasn't enough, he also sat on his chest until he uh, fell unconscious and then drowned him in the kitchen sink. Uh, Once again, Nelson bathed the body and uh, kept it in the house for a few days. He performed sex acts upon the body, um, uh, but when he noticed signs of bloating... He put Martin's body under the floorboards.
0: Because that's just his solution to everything, isn't it? It's like when you're tidying up the house and you just keep putting things in that one drawer or that one cupboard uh-huh. until the door's about to burst off because it's so full of junk. Yep. He's just like, oh, well, better put this, just hide this under the floorboards for now. Deal with it later.
1: It's just not a good solution either, I don't think.
0: No. And just three months later, Nilsen would claim his fourth victim. In August 1980, um, so even Nilsen himself isn't sure of the date. Uh, Nilsson met 26-year-old William Sutherland, originally from Edinburgh. He was living in London and had turned to sex work to support himself. The pair met at a club in Piccadilly Circus. And Nilsson also couldn't couldn't recall exactly how he killed William Sutherland. Knew he strangled him, but other than that, he couldn't recall any details. Just that in the morning, there was another dead body in his flat.
1: I mean, I'm going to take a wild guess and say he strangled him and he drowned him. And then at a certain point, he put him in the floorboards. Like,
0: I mean, that would be in keeping with him. But if you wake up and you're just like, oh, there's another dead body in the flat. At that point, you need to have a word with yourself.
1: I know. Like, that's one of those, like look at your life, look at your choices, moments because like bro what are you doing here? Um so between autumn 1980 and april 1981, Nilsson murdered another seven victims. Uh unfortunately and and tragically none of them have ever been identified. Now, Nilsson confessed to all of these murders, uh, but then did recant some of those confessions later on. Um, The first one was in September 1980. Nilsson met this man in the Cricklewood Arms again. um, uh, And he described the man as an Irish laborer with rough hands uh, between the ages of 27 and 30. But that's all he could remember about him. Um, In October, he met a male sex worker in the Salisbury Arms who he described as slender um, between the ages of 20 and 30 uh, and as being either Filipino or Mexican with, quote, gypsy-like features, although we're not really sure what that means or implies. Casual racism is what it means. Yeah. But like, what those features
0: may be? Who knows? That's Mexican, Filipino, gypsy-like in some way, gypsy-esque, I guess. Um, yeah. That so. Apparently, the word "gypsy" in itself isn't offensive. It's how you use it. So if you use gypsy, it could refer to like travelers, like mm-hmm. Irish travelers, or it could refer to like the Roma, Roma community Romani, yeah. or Romani, Roman Ram, Ram, Romani, there's a few different yeah. words for it, yeah. but they don't look the same. They all have their own identifying features and individually everyone looks different anyway. Yeah. So what the hell does this person look like?
1: I think he just didn't remember and he just pulled the first three, like, things he could think of out of of thin air.
0: In November, he met an Englishman who he described as a vagrant in his 20s. I hate that word, vagrant.
1: Vagrant, yeah. Uh,
0: He met the man in the Charing Cross area of London where the young man had been sleeping in a doorway. Uh, Nilsson took him back to his home on Melrose Avenue and strangled him while he slept. Nielsen said he believed this victim's life had been one of long suffering and that the act of killing him had been, quote, as easy as taking candy from a baby. Just...
1: No, stop it. It's the same, like, oh, um I relieved him of his suffering. Like, oh. bullshit. It's the same, like John List. Except this is even worse because mm-hmm. you didn't even fucking know the guy.
0: Yeah, in either November or December, Nelson couldn't remember. He met a man he described as a long-haired English hippie, aged between twenty-five and thirty. Uh, after the like pubs had closed in London, which would be around eleven o'clock at night, or maybe even ten o'clock at night. I can't remember like closing time. It's you know night. In the once it gets dark, yeah. <laughs> it can be any time, but. Now, but well, it used to be the ten or eleven o'clock, depending on where you were. But Nelson wasn't happy with just murdering this man. He then dissected the body, and placed him beneath the floorboards. Great. And remember, Nelson trained was like trained in the catering car in the army. He had butcher's training.
1: Ah, uh, yes. So at some point, this flat began to smell. Absolutely and completely and utterly awful, as you might imagine, because of the eight dead bodies underneath the floorboards. Shocker. Yeah, uh, f- that, you know, just uh, months. I, I can't. No, mm, no, no, no. So, Nelson decided to remove all the dead bodies from the flat. He dissected them all and burned them in a huge funeral pyre in the garden. (gasps) What kind of privacy does this fucking flat garden have that you can just burn bodies in it? Um, Now, you might expect a fire full of eight dead bodies smells really fucking bad. Uh, So to disguise the smell, he threw a bunch of tires onto the fire. Now... If you've ever driven past a tire fire, you'll know burning rubber smells real strong.
0: Uh, Yeah. And this isn't like burning rubber on a road when you're spinning your wheels and shit. No, it's like... It smells so bad. Yeah. Um,
1: Now, if this wasn't bad enough, because it was already pretty fucking bad, the neighborhood children then went out and played and danced around this bonfire.
0: I am now questioning the village bonfires we went to as kids. 1981 didn't slow Nilsen down, and between New Year's and April, he killed a further three men, all of whom still remain unidentified. On January 4th, he met a man he described as an 18-year-old blue-eyed Scot at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He invited the man back to Melrose Avenue. The two had a drinking contest. And then Nilsson murdered him and kept his body in the flat for about a week. And then dissected the body and hid it below the floorboards.
1: Just like in true Nilsson style. I don't think we even have to say that anymore. I'll just cut a clip of, of it from earlier in the episode and just paste it. <laughs> okay. It's just going to keep happening, I feel like. Um, I mean,
0: you are just creating work for yourself when it's a very easy phrase to say.
1: I mean, yes, but still. Um so the tenth victim was murdered in February. He was slim, about five foot nine, and had a Belfast accent. Uh, They had met after the pubs had closed in the West End and Nelson invited him back to the flat uh where he strangled him with a necktie and then hid the body under the floorboards. Um now the next victim, who is the final unidentified victim, was described by Nelson as a skinhead neo-Nazi, very muscular about 20 years old, Uh, and the two met in Leicester Square in April 1981, and Nilsen lured him to the flat with the promise of food and drink. Nilsen said the man had a tattoo across his neck, which was a dotted line and a pair of scissors uh, with the words, cut here. Uh, Like the others, Nilsen kept the body in the flat for a day or two and then hid the body under the floorboards. Did he cut there?
0: I don't think so.
1: Seems like a missed opportunity. I don't know. Don't dissect people, but also.
0: Of these seven unidentified men, Nilsson later claimed to have fabricated three of them. The Irish Labourer, the Long-Haired Hippie, and the Skin-Haired Neo-Nazi. But um, so remains were eventually found, because um, as we have talked about before, you cannot burn a body completely to ash on a garden. Yeah. Area. Um. So microscopic remains were found, but have never been able to be tested. So until we're at a point where they either can be tested, um, or some other evidence, some one comes forward or some other evidence comes up, we'll likely never know whether or not Nielsen was lying or telling the truth or what he was like, or whether he was lying about lying. <laughs> <laughs> on September 18th, 1981, Nelson murdered his final victim at Melrose Avenue. 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow visited the flat on Melrose Avenue to thank Nielsen for helping him receive medical treatment the previous day. Malcolm was epileptic and Nielsen had seen him outside, his flat, falling sort of into the wall. Um, he's, you know, having a, uh, an epileptic fit. So Nielsen called an ambulance, waited with Barlow until they got there. Um, he was described as an orphan who had spent much of his life in and out of care homes. Uh, Nielsen strangled Malcolm and hid the body under the kitchen sink because he was running out of space under the floorboards.
1: Good. That's that's what you want to hear. Um, so in the winter of uh, 1981 to 1982, Nelson's landlord decided to renovate the flat um, and tried to evict Nelson, but uh, Nelson refused to go. So eventually, the landlord and Nelson came to an agreement, and Nelson was paid £1,000 to move out. But before he vacated the flat he had to dispose of all the bodies he was keeping under the floorboards. So, as one does, he had another huge bonfire in the garden, um, and like the previous one, he topped it with car tires to disguise the smell of burning bodies. Then, in early 1982, Dennis Nelson moved into the attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens.
0: In March 1982, 23-year-old John Howlett the first victim to be killed at cranley gardens the pair met in a pub near leicester square and Nilsson lured john back to the house with a promise of more drinking after john fell asleep Nilsson attempted to strangle him but john woke up and fought back and it actually took quite a while for Nilsson to eventually kill him in the fight howlett managed to or tried to strangle Nilsson, but was eventually overpowered due to being you know absolutely paralytic drunk. And Nilsen strangled John until he was unconscious and then drowned him in the bathtub. And then he dissected the body. But this time he had a bit of a problem.
1: Yes. Because you see,
0: unlike the flat at
1: Melrose Avenue, uh, at Cranley Gardens, Nilsen had no access to a garden because he was living in the attic flat. Uh, And he also... Couldn't keep the bodies under the floor, probably uh, because, you know, there's a floor below you, and someone might smell yeah, it's, that.
0: It's, yeah, it's the same thing. Because he's in the attic flat. If you put the body under the floorboards, you would eventually start to see signs of that Und- on the yeah, ceiling. On the flat, below. there would be staining and and things like that on the the ceiling below.
1: Not as sneaky.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I realized I didn't word that very well. <laughs> I knew what yeah. I meant.
1: Um, so instead, Nilsson tried to dispose of the dissected body parts by flushing them down the toilet. Uh, in September 1982, Nilsen met Graham Allen on Shaftesbury Avenue in central London. Graham had accepted Nilsen's offer of food and drink and accompanied him to the flat in Cranley Gardens. Uh, Nilsson claimed not to remember the exact moment when he murdered the 27-year-old father from Motherwell, just outside of Glasgow. Um, however, he did know that Graham was eating an omelette, and then just, he was dead, and had been strangled. I mean, omelettes are very dangerous, so.
0: Oh yeah, they they just jump up off the plate and strangle you. Yeah, it happens. Should come with a warning. That's why you need a frame. You need a frying pan handy, and you just hit the omelet back.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like his previous victim, Nilsson dissected Graham's body and attempted to flush the body parts down the toilet. Uh, Graham was ad- eventually identified by dental records as he had numerous healed jaw fractures.
0: Nilsson's final victim was Stephen Sinclair. 20-year-old with addiction issues from Perth in Scotland, not in Australia. <laughs> uh, they met on Oxford Street in, on January 26th, 1983. Nielsen bought Stephen a burger before suggesting that the younger man accompany him to Cranley Gardens. And it was in the flat that evening that Nielsen strangled Stephen with a ligature. He then dissected the body and it was parts of Stephen's body that were actually found by police two weeks later. Yeah. And the drain workers, obviously. On February 9th, along with parts of Graham and John's bodies. She had not been able to dispose of. And now we're back to where we began our story.
1: Yeah. So, um, there were a number of other acquaintances of Nelson's who had only just escaped with their lives. Including one man named Carl, who Nilsson tried to strangle and drown, but miraculously he survived. And after lying unconscious for a couple of days in Nilsson's living room, he recovered enough to leave. Um,
0: yeah, and um, I just realized I didn't put it in the script. The only reason that Nilsson realized he was alive was because he had a dog, a border collie called Bleep. <laughs> Like that. Which is the weirdest name for a dog ever, bleep. Um the dog was like licking his face and that's what eventually woke him up. Huh. Um he just thought that Carl had died.
1: Well there you go. Dogs coming in clutch. So. Um Yeah. So Nilsson told Carl that he had almost strangled himself with the zip of the sleeping bag he was sleeping in. Um, and it was only a few years later that Carl learned the truth. Another man named Douglas testified at Nelson's trial that he had awoken in Nelson's flat with his ankles bound together and Nelson straddling him. Uh, luckily, he managed to overpower Nelson and escape with his life.
0: Yeah, and that's very much like Andrew Hart as well because it was the nineteen seventies, and it was two gay men. Mm-hmm. The police just didn't care. Yeah. Um, Nilsson confessed to all the murders, although he says that some of them he fabricated. He was remanded into custody on February 11th, but didn't really take well to prison life. And whilst on remand, he refused to wear the prison uniform, threatened to protest by wearing nothing. As a result, he was not allowed to leave his cell. <laughs> Um, and on August 1st, he took uh, his full chamber pot because prisons typically didn't have running water in the cells. Um, some, I think, I think it was Peterhead Prison didn't have running water in cells until 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so he took this full chamber pot and threw it at a guard. Good. And as a result of the incident, he was charged with assaulting a prison guard and put in solitary confinement for 56 days.
1: Well, if he wasn't crazy already, and I'm pretty sure he was crazy already, he's going to be after that. Holy shit. <laughs> um, Nelson was charged with six murders uh, because several of the victims had never been identified, so he couldn't be charged with their deaths. Um, and also because he recanted a number of confessions and claimed some of these men never existed um, so he was charged with the six murders and two counts of attempted murder. And he pled guilty to all counts. Uh, much of the argument at his trial was based around whether or not Nilsson was in his right state of mind when he committed the murders. The prosecution argued that he was sane and showed premeditation, but the defense argued he suffered from diminished responsibility and should therefore be charged with manslaughter, with manslaughter rather than murder.
0: In the opening statement, the prosecution used part of Nilsson's confession he had given to the police, saying, at the precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. adding, the Crown says that even if there was a mental abnormality, there was not sufficient to diminish substantially his responsibility for these killings. So basically, even if he was... In any sort of diminished capacity, it was not enough to absolve him of responsibility for killing these men. Um, On November 4th, following a 10-day trial, Nilsson was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. He was transferred to Wormwood Scrubs in London. And uh, in My Life with Murderers, uh, which is a book by criminologist David Wilson, who was the youngest ever prison governor in the UK, uh, his first po- he talks about his first posting, which was to the Scrubs. Um, and it was at about the same time that Nielsen was, was sent there. And he talks about it a lot in the book. And it's really interesting.
1: After the Scrubs, Nelson spent time in Pankhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. Uh, he spent time in our, you know, friend of the podcast, old favorite, the monster mansion, AKA Wakefield prison, um, full Sutton prison and Whitemore prison. Um, he was often moved for his own safety. Uh, in 1994, 11 years after his trial, Nielsen's original sentence of, uh, 25 to life was changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, Nilsson accepted this sentence and is rumored to have said that had he not been apprehended, he would have kept killing. Uh, in 2003, he was transferred back to Full Sutton in the East Riding of Yorkshire, but not East Yorkshire.
0: Yeah. So you have North Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, and the East Riding of Yorkshire. It's not East Yorkshire for some reason. And people get very, very uh, defensive about it, which is why I'm always like, don't shorten it to East Yorkshire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can also refer to the other three as like the North Riding, the South and the West Riding. Interesting.
1: Not a terminology I have ever heard before. Um, yeah. So he would remain yeah. there until his death.
0: Nilsson was not a particularly popular prisoner with the inmates nor with the guards and made frequent petitions to the Home Office and eventually the European Court of Human Rights, which was the highest court in the UK. And I think it still is for like the rest of the EU. But now, obviously, because we're leaving, I technically have left. Um, I don't think that we I don't think it's our highest court anymore. Probably not. Uh, One of these complaints, which I absolutely love uh, and just had to share, is from 2001. So Nilsson was a subscriber to a number of pornographic magazines, which apparently is allowed in prison. And he brought a judicial review against the prison service, citing that the homosexual softcore pornography magazines, to which he regularly subscribed, had some images and articles of a more explicit nature removed before the magazine reached him. Because uh, if you don't know, I assume most people do in prison, they read your mail before they give it to you because, you know, you could be making escape attempts yeah. and things like that. Or all sorts could be smuggled in via the mail, Um, you know, sheets of acid, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you could pretty much try and smuggle anything in um, or make any kind of plans. So they read and take like photocopy your letters or anything that gets sent to you in the post. Um, So the legal case he brought against prison service was dismissed because he could not establish that any breach of his human rights has occurred. So yeah, basically you don't have a human right to pawn.
1: Not in prison anyway. (laughs) Obviously they're gonna fucking uh, just duh, guy. Come on. Um, Yeah. On May 10th 2018, he was taken from Full Sutton to the York Hospital with severe stomach pains. He had surgery to repair an aortic aneurysm, but suffered a blood clot as a result and died on May 12th. Uh, now, full autopsies must be carried out on all uh, who die in prison custody and Nelson's autopsy showed that he had died from a pul- pulmonary embolism and Retroperitoneal hemorrhage
0: of Nielsen's victims, only three had permanent addresses at the time of their deaths Stephen Holmes, Kenneth Ockenden, and Graham Allen. And I believe from the reading, everything I've done, these were the only ones who were reported missing as well. Mm -hmm. Although there are conflicting reports about that. So I think part of this goes back to you know, the argument of diminished responsibility. He purposely targeted the, you know quote-unquote, less dead. Mm-hmm. He purp- he went for people he knew wouldn't be missed or people he knew wouldn't go to the police and wouldn't, yeah. you know, people who just wouldn't be looked yeah. for. Or, you know, if they did escape, there were people whose stories just wouldn't be taken seriously.
1: Um, yeah, definitely the people who were already looked down upon by society.
0: To me, that definitely plays into, you know, sort of premeditation and and opportunist opportunism as yeah. well. Um but yeah, he he knew who wouldn't be looked for. Yeah.
1: Um so in the thirty seven years since his arrest, uh Nilsen has been the subject of much debate. Um offender profiling, uh, There have been countless books and documentaries. He said himself uh, that he was never able to fully explain why he killed or what compelled him to murder, Um, although it has been widely accepted that he killed for company. Since the death of his grandfather, he had always associated love with death and had problems when it came to socializing and communicating with others. Uh, it's generally understood that he killed for company because the dead could never leave him. And although uh, he kept killing because obviously without embalming or mummification, you can't keep a dead body for very long. So that is the absolutely twisted case of Dennis Nelson killing for company.
0: Wow. That... Isn't really a lot more to say on that. I think we've covered it. Our thoughts on that pretty well. Yeah. Um. He he was obviously he had that you know some kind of trauma from his childhood to do with his grandfather mm-hmm. dying and that you know conflation like conflating love and death together. But lots of people lose their grandparents really young. I was five when my both my grandmothers died like six uh, six weeks apart when I was mm-hmm. five. It doesn't turn you into a serial killer. No, there is something else going on. Yeah, and I don't believe, I don't buy diminished responsibility at all because they say he went after the less dead.
1: Yeah, and also just like the sort of calmness with which he approached approached the police during his initial encounter with them. They're just like, yeah, yeah he, there's there's a dead body in my closet yeah there were fifteen or sixteen people that I murdered like
0: yeah he he knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong,
1: yeah and like clearly over over time, he like recanted stuff and and told you know lied about stuff this and that so like this whole oh well i just woke up and he was dead or he was just eating an omelet and then he was dead it's like Mm. yeah okay but that's according to you they're dead they can't tell us otherwise so like yeah i don't really buy diminished responsibility in that case because he's clearly he's an unreliable you know narrator for lack of a better word
0: oh yeah (sighs) by a lot yeah um And that, I think, is everything we have to say. Yes,
1: this episode is long enough already.
0: (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Please come find us on social media, Square Mile of Murder, the podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Join our Facebook group. Uh, Tell us what you think about the case. Tell us if you've been watching uh, the TV show. Mm -hmm. We will have been posting about it the last couple of days. Um, So, yeah, come and talk to us about that. Anyone else really freaked out that David Tennant looks so much like him? So much. Um, Holy shit. Is. Oh, it is scary. Yeah. Um We're also on Twitter. We're trying to use Twitter more. We're trying to be better with that. Personally I hate I Twitter. hate Twitter too. Twitter and public Twitter and public transport are where you see the worst. In humanity. <laughs> But come and find us anyway. We are there at Square Mile Pod. Yeah, the other thing and that we're yeah.
1: doing on Twitter is we're um, we're going to be sharing a lot of the, like, sources that we use to put together each episode. So if you're interested in, like, yeah. deeper reading or more specific reading on specific subjects in each episode, then go check that stuff out.
0: Yeah. And... Um, yeah just come and talk to us we we like talking to people sometimes uh thank you for all your case suggestions i think we've got them planned out now going from you know through october november and december uh so keep an ear out for them as always you can just suggest cases to us on social media there's not many we will outright reject
1: no yeah and like going going with that idea you know we got Several suggestions, awesome suggestions from you guys. um, the last time we put out a call for uh cases to cover, and the only ones out of those suggestions that we aren't gonna do are ones that we had already done, so um yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, so. so you know, we're pretty much up for anything, like any it doesn't have to be murder either, like you know. If you we, we love broad. Yeah. We love like a a, a fraud scandal. Is our favorite. Um so if you have any fun ones that aren't mm-hmm. uh floorboards full of dead bodies, let us know. Uh so yeah. Um and if you haven't already and you would be so kind, we would very much love it if you could um go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I don't know if you can do it on Spotify, but if you can, go do it there too.
0: Um, yeah. um, you can't do it on Google, I don't okay. think. Google Podcasts, because well, that's what I use. To
1: be fair, Apple um, Podcasts is the big one in terms of podcasts, like charts and distribution. Yeah. So if you're using that, that would be cool. Um, yeah. Uh, it helps us reach more people. The other thing you could do, if you are so inclined two more things, actually, don't worry. We'll let you go soon. Uh, one, you could mm-hmm. text, uh, three people or, uh, Insta, Facebook, Graham message, WhatsApp, WeChat them. I don't know what the kids are doing these days. TikTok your friends and tell them about our podcast. If you think they would like it. Um, and, uh, Cause, cause that's also really a good way to, you know, share, share, not the joy so much this episode. We didn't really share the joy. <laughs> we shared the carnage, Yeah, but, uh, you, you get, you get what I mean. Go bug your friends. And if you would like come and join our Patreon, uh, it's super easy. It's pretty cheap. If you want it to be, it can be more expensive if you want it to be, but it super doesn't have to be. Uh, for a a dollar a month or like, you know, just less than a pound, uh, in your own local currency, you can help support the show and every, uh, Patreon member gets access to regular episodes a day early. Um, we have exclusive stuff for you on Patreon. We have like, uh, little pin badges, stickers, um you know uh, bonus episodes so go check that out um we're also going to be uh asking our patrons what they want to hear bonus episodes on so yes you know be a part of it get get into it y'all yeah it's it's gonna be fun
0: yeah and now class dismissed thank you for listening We will see you soon with some more, hopefully less, graphic content. Yes,
1: that would be nice. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Bye.
0: Bye.